How long had you and your brother been doing business before you, quote, and oversimplifying this a little bit, but quote unquote, hit the home run with this plane you're talking about now? What's it called again? SR-20. SR-20. How many years went by before you, because that seems to be your signature. That was your signature plane that really put you guys on the market. And I I, I don't mean that disrespectfully, but that's the plane that was the home run, correct? That's the airplane that was a success in all true business terms. Financially, marketability, saleability, buildability, maintenance, you hit the home run. How many years were you guys in business before you got that home run? 10 years, 20 years? It was 10 years from the time we started the company to the time we introduced the SR-20. Okay. And then it was another three years before we finished it and got it licensed to where we, we could sell it. And then it was a couple of years to ramp up and to get it in production Action. and before it was really making a profit. Okay. So I've heard you mention a lot of things that I'd never really thought about in an airplane, but I can actually relate being in a lot of small planes in my career that, yeah, a lot of those older planes were hot as hell or cold or noisy as shit or whatever. And I can see how you fixed all those problems, but I haven't heard the parachute yet because me as a beginner, that's what intrigued me the most because the one question you didn't say that I wanted to know, that I asked is, what the fuck happens if you die? What happens if you have a heart attack? What happens if you pass out on me? I don't know how to fly this bitch. Where do I go? What do I do? Who do I call? So the parachute to me... Uh, as a little bit of a nervous flyer, was a big deal. But I haven't heard you mention that just yet in your design and ergonomics and everything. You've covered a lot of cool things that obviously made you a home run. Was the parachute in Generation 1 or that was somewhere down the track? No, it was Generation... From the moment we started that airplane, not our kit plane, the moment we started the SR-20... We're out of the kits now and we're building planes. From the first thought of a next airplane, it was going to have a parachute. Whose idea was that? That was Alan's idea. It was my brother. Okay. So he was involved in a mid-air collision in 1985. Okay. The other airplane went down. Person was killed. Okay. Alan lost four feet of the wing. He's in my dad's 182. He lost four feet of the wing. Just cut it off clean. He was able to land basically as fast as the airplane will go at full control with the airplane still rolling. So he was at the edge of controllability and he got the airplane down on the ground Mm -hmm. and he got out and he said, there has to be another way. He didn't get out saying, airplanes are stupid, screw this, we're gonna go do something else. It was like, no, there's gotta be a better way. People are involved, people are gonna make mistakes, people are gonna run into problems. It cannot always be life or death or how good you are as a pilot. pilot. And he really is a great pilot. He was able to get a broken airplane onto the ground. I contend that 98% of the pilots in the world are not gonna land that airplane successfully. But he didn't get out saying, you know, you gotta be as good as me. He got out and said, there's gotta be something else. There's gotta be another way. So he came back to you and came up with the parachute concept. Why hadn't anybody beat you to this? Well, so and he that, came back and said, you know, I don't know what the answer is, but there's gonna, we're going to go find the answer. And the parachute is something that was started by 
a guy in St. Paul, Minnesota. Company's called BRS, Ballistic Recovery System. And he's a guy in the 70s was flying a, a, a hang glider. You know, you jump off a yep. cliff in a big kite. Yep. Yep. And he was in one of these things. The wing broke, it folded. He's now tumbling down out of this thing. And he said to himself, if it. I live through this, I'm going to figure out how to put a parachute on this thing. And he, he crashed. He did. He broke a few bones. But, he survived. And he said, okay, I'm going to figure out how to put a parachute on my ultralight. So that was in the 70s. And it slowly kept growing to very light airplanes, a little bit bigger airplanes. So we come across them in the late 80s, early 90s, yep. and said, oh, this is a great idea. So our next design is going to have this parachute. You know, it's back to the naivete of young people and, yeah, and the cockiness of, yeah. well, this will be easy. Let's put a parachute <laughs> on an airplane. And so in from sense, the beginning. It makes sense. Makes total sense in theory. <laughs> you know, when you, you look at how parachutes are used, I mean, the Apollos come out of space. Yeah. Spacecraft under a parachute. The military will push damn near a tank out the back of an airplane under a parachute. Parachutes are, I'm not going to say common, but yeah. parachutes are considered pretty darn reliable, pretty yeah. capable. The problem is that with a parachute, they are very point-specific designed items. What does that mean in layman's terms? That went over my head. What do you mean by that? Well, when the military pushes a truck out the back of an airplane, they know exactly what speed the airplane is going, exactly what weight they have. when. So they know this parachute's going to work because there are no variables. Apollo coming down. There are no variables. They know the weight. They know the speed when it's going to when it's going to open. How quickly it's going to descend. Yep. So they kind of pinpoint where it's going to land. They no. They pinpoint all of the parameters around the vehicle when they pull the chute. There aren't variables. Okay. We come along and say, well, we've got a we got a little airplane that might be at three thousand pounds gross weight, and it might be at eighteen hundred pounds. And it might be doing 160 knots, and it might be doing 80 knots. Might be in a spin, might be in complete control. Might be... Upside down. It might have just hit yeah. something else. It might be broken. Yeah. All of these things, it might be upside down. Now all of a sudden you take all the variables and say, I'm gonna, I need a parachute to do all of this. Not this one point. It's got to be able to open very, very fast when you're going slow, because you're usually close to the ground. So it's got to open quickly and decelerate. When you're at your highest speed, it's got to open slowly because otherwise it'll shred yes. or get torn off. So you have to be able to create something to make a, take on a huge group of variables. And that hadn't been done to that point, correct? That has only been done by the company BRS. That's what I mean. The people yep. that specialize in that. Yep. What other industry used that similar technology to what you were trying to use? Uh, nobody. Nobody. Okay. That's yeah. what I was. That's what I was getting at. It hadn't been done before. Meaning right. that there's no other industry, for lack of a better word, that you could copy. There's no other industry that that is a model that says, okay, these people are doing pretty close to what we want to yeah. do. No. And Boris Popoff is the only one with BRS where they were doing it and. We looked at it and said, well, he's figured this out. This is easy. Yeah. We're going to take, he just puts it on 500 pound airplanes, but we're going to put it on a 3,000 pound airplane. 
And yeah, the airplanes that he puts it on go 100, and we're going to be going 180, 190 miles an hour. Yeah, but so big deal. That should be easy, right? Stuff like that's not easy, you know. So the way we developed the parachute, you take a concept that works, and the concept that Boris came up with that makes the parachute work is he puts inside, so on a parachute there's, you know, the risers that yep. go up that hold it. He has in that, in a sense, another little parachute that goes on all the, the risers. And this little parachute, when you're going really, really fast, limits the amount of air going through the big parachute and won't let it open quickly. So it, it's like a torque limiter. Yep. When you're going fast, it won't open quickly. But when you're going slow, the big parachute overcomes that speed difference faster. I mean, the because of the, the 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 physics in it, it will open very quickly, slow, open very slow, fast. So that was the first variable. Okay, we've we've got something that can work. Then we thought, ah, we'll just make it big enough for the weight and strong enough. And to make that work, um, we designed the parachute. The FAA had to come up with a rule: how do you certify this? To certify the canopy, they said, you got to go to the desert. You got to drop, you have to do three drops at maximum weight plus all of the safety factors. So it was yep. you know, about 30 times over. And you have to have three successful drops and we'll certify the parachute. Well, this is where all the book work doesn't exist because it's all so point specific. And we ended up designing, our, well, our drops, we went to the desert, to Kingman. We rented a C-123, which is a big cargo plane where the back end yeah, opens, like movies, yeah. opens up. And we put together literally barrels of sand, strapped it to a, a crate, and put the parachute on it and pushed it out the back of the airplane. To, and it was 38 times doing that before we figured out how to make the parachute stay together. 38 times. Now this is you guys and the other gentleman from the other company. Or was it, he was not, was not involved? It was no, maybe. no, he was, he was involved, yeah. 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 You guys as a team kind yeah. of came up with this. Yeah. A lot of experimental shit going on. Okay, a lot of R&D. Okay. A lot of R&D because so how, there is no, there's no there's book no that you can There's no base model to go off, okay. Right. So does this take you, again, I'm going to break things down to be simple. Is this a three-year period that takes you to nail this? Five years? How much time's gone by here? It's three, three years, four years. And in the time. meantime, you're still making money selling what kind of plane? How are you keeping afloat? We're making no money. Oh, truly. Still hand or to mouth. Basically no money. Yeah. So there's, there's two ways. So now we're on to the, the fundraising side. Now let's back up. A number of years, we introduced the VK-30, our kit plane, very unique airplane. Everybody sees it, they hear about it. You know, you might sit back and say, I'm not interested in that airplane, but wow, that's a cool airplane. These guys must be really smart to come up with an airplane like that, yeah. right? So when we decide that we are not going to make it as a kit plane manufacturer, we have to, literally, we're, we're going broke, so we had two options. We either close the door and say, yep, Gave it great idea, I'm gonna go work at a bank. And, yep. Or we're gonna go on and take on Cessna, Piper, Beach, Mooney, all of the 
big companies that are out there, this little unsuccessful kit manufacturer is now going to go build an airplane. We decide that we have the key to actually make a successful airplane where they haven't in this industry, on our end of the industry, I should say, for at this point now 20 years. Yeah. 20 years basically not really showing a profit theoretically meaning that meaning that you're still eating you're still going from hand to mouth a little bit you know you're yeah. pay, well, you're still you're stealing it, you're stealing from peter to pay paul we are yes but, but we're into it for 10 years but you know cessna hadn't been developing that end of the market for now 20 years mm -hmm. so that created the opportunity mm -hmm. think of the technology changes over 20 years yes so we're going to come in with a new airplane. It's not going to be radical. It's going to be radical in the terms of it's going to be safer. It's going yeah, to have a pair. You those three questions that your wife can make sure that the other people want to be in it. And wanting to, to fly, yeah, the biggest reason people don't fly is because they're afraid. Mm -hmm. And they're afraid for a lot of good reasons. If something yeah. happens to the pilot, you're dead. And I literally had somebody say that at an air show where we're out trying to sell our airplane with a parachute. And he goes, well, I don't need a parachute. Been flying my whole life. I've never needed a parachute. And you kind of look at him, yeah, but you're not dead. There's a lot of people that are dead. And what happens to the people on board if something did happen to you? And he had the gall to stand there and say, well, if my time's up and they came with me, it's their time too. Mm -hmm. I'm like, well, that's not it's quite not my acceptable. attitude. Yeah, that's not acceptable. <laughs> so, so the parachute... Piece you, get, of it. you figure that but, part out. Yeah, so so we've got what we believe is the key that we're going to change run. this industry. Home run. We're going to change the industry, and we are going to outsell, outproduce everybody else. But right, we we have no money. We Which, were unsuccessful. You got to ramp up a lot of things. Get you got to do but production, had, employees. Lots we had such a unique design that people knew of us. So we weren't a couple of kids off the street. Instead, we're a couple of kids that, hey, we just designed and built the coolest airplane ever made, mm -hmm. which would certainly open doors. But when we made this, this decision to go certify an airplane, we still were marketing ourselves at air shows, yet we no longer were going to sell the kits. So we'd go to an air show, still putting on the same dog and pony, but we priced the, air, the, the kit now truly out of the market. And when people would come deliberately? up. Deliberately? Deliberately. Tell me again, just to back me up a little bit, why did you price it deliberately not to sell it? Because we didn't have the capability of developing a new airplane and supporting the, the kids. Okay, you had to pick one or the other. One or the other. And one we know is a failure, business-wise. Yes. This is the route we're going. Okay. But we can't tell the industry that's what we're doing. Yes. And we can't let the industry think that we went away. Yeah. So you keep marketing it. Yes. And you stand there, you go to the air shows, but we'd go to the air shows and talk about our airplane, talk about why it's the greatest thing in the world. And people would come and say, you know, I, I love the airplane, but I don't want to build it. This was opening doors for us. It was like, mm -hmm. well, to not build it means we have to certify it. And to certify it means we got we need some huge investments. And we were at an air show where we had a guy come up and say, I don't want to build it, I just want to buy it. Well, then we got to certify it. Okay, then let's go certify it. Well, that's going to take several million dollars. That much, eh? Okay. 
No, no. So there, like there's, a, there's a long there's a long story in here, yeah. but basically we didn't know what it would take either. But we said we wouldn't start unless we had four million dollars. Okay. And his answer was, "Okay, let's go get started." I love it. So we took a couple of our engineers, sat down with the FARs, the flight rules, the certification rules, and they went through every single rule and they created a checklist on how do you pass this rule? How do you test for this rule? You know, what yeah. does it take? What's it going to cost? You know, how do you design? So they, in a sense, we're creating the path to be able to design a certified airplane. In the meantime, we've never certified anything before in our life. But we're the only people asking questions. They're calling the FAA saying, I don't get this. Why would you, you know, how do you get through this? They're asking enough questions that after a year of this, the FAA now starts calling us saying, well, you guys are the certification experts. You're the only ones doing it. So before we'd ever done anything, we already, now we had the reputation of building the coolest mm -hmm. complex airplane. Yep. The FAA thinks we're the, certification experts and we've got a backing of somebody saying yeah we're going to go certify an airplane let's go do it so what i'm confused why wasn't cessna or some of the other big brands certifying their planes they were but they had they had grown to the place where they were investing in jets they were investing in bigger airplanes okay. they were making all their money on big airplanes they couldn't afford just like us we can't afford to go back and do a kit plane they couldn't afford to go spend millions and millions of dollars developing a better small end airplane. They didn't have the resources. They didn't have the the well, all yeah. the reasons. They didn't have the engineering, the manufacturing. They didn't have all of that. They would either have to take it away from building a jet where they know they they will be very successful. And bread and butter. That's making money. And put it down here, and they basically said. I no longer care about the low end of the industry, which opens up the door for us. Yes. Yes. So that created that 20-year time frame of new technology in. They're putting new technology in, but they're, at, they're talking about five, six, eight, ten million dollar yes. products. We're down here in a $200,000 product. Yes. Yes. <clears throat> so you get, the, you get your first little bit of seed money from this investor. You obviously get certified. Are you off to the races? Not really? No. So another piece of this through through all of this, you know, how we, we fund things. We we got a military a development contract to build a military drone. Mm -hmm. Again, this is the mid nineties. So we were building what was the original concepts for tactical air vehicle. It's an unmanned tactical air vehicle. And the whole idea was that we were building a product that comes out of a Humvee that the commander at the front line can take off and see what's on the other side of the hill. They didn't have to call yeah, anybody else. They didn't have to ask for anything. And it was through a company that was a an ammunitions or a bomb company mm -hmm. that actually had the contract. So they came to us and said, you know, well, you guys are the design experts. We want you to design an airplane to do these things. And one of the cool parts of this design was it had to come out of a trailer in a Humvee or pulled by a Humvee, get snapped together in less than five minutes with no tools and be able to fly. So it it was, you know, we had to figure out how you snap 
you put all the wing on, the tail on, the prop, everything, and then there was one lever inside the airplane. You throw one lever, put in all the pins, it connected all the controls, you know, from one lever. It, it was a really fun design challenge. But that money gave you a little bit more seed and money to get going. that was more seed money. Yes. And in this, you know, some of the, you look at the, how our government works, and here's the crazy part. We're spending our money developing our own product. And we're doing a military project, not on the side. I mean, it was yeah. a huge focus, but it wasn't the only thing we were doing. We get audited by the, the military. And they come in and they said, we're not charging enough. And we're going, what are you talking about? We, we put out a bid. You accept We were asked to do a bid. We said we'd do this for this amount of money. That's what we're getting paid. Yeah, but there are rules. The government has, has to pay a percentage of overhead. Well, our overhead is huge because we're developing something else that they have to pay us more money because our overhead is so high. Yeah. And we're sitting there going, this is insane. Yes. No wonder our, yeah, no our country is... No wonder the fucking government's bankrupt all the time bankrupt. and just prints money. They came and said, <laughs> you didn't charge us enough. Yeah. What go, real business can do that? Yeah. Seriously. So we charged what... We said it would cost. Yes. Yeah, but that's not enough. We There are rules. Like, okay, we'll, we'll take more money. <laughs> so th that's part of how yeah. we're earning money. <clears throat> with Alan and I, the way that we div divided our time. Yes, and, and, and before you go on with that, I wanted to ask a question about your brother because he seems like he was an integral part of this whole thing. Oh, yeah. What skill set or analytical skill set did he have that maybe you didn't have? Where was he strong and you were weak or vice versa? Meaning that I, I've seen brothers or sisters that have started businesses together or just couples. And one was, uh, you know, I, actually even on a very small scale, but my parents, for example, they were entrepreneurial people, owned a lot of small businesses. My mother was always the face of the business. Greet the customer, how you doing? Kissing babies, welcoming, very, very personable, making sure people felt comfortable to come in, great customer service. My dad always handled the numbers and the back end of it and the inventory and making sure bills were paid, etc. So they were they have a unique set of skills that were different from each other. If you put my old man out in the front, he'd run every customer off because he's not as personable as my mother. Does that make sense? But my dad was very analytical, controlled the money really well made sure everything was good on the back end. So on a very basic scale, they had two completely different skill sets that were both very necessary for those small businesses to succeed. You know what I mean? Yep. What is difference between you and your brother? If you had to, as a, obviously we're talking about a broad stroke of a pen here, a brush, what kind of, how does he think compared to how you think? Um, or skill set, I don't know if I'm asking quite the right question here. It, yeah, and I wouldn't put it so much as the skill set. There are things. Well, there talents, are talents there are a lot a of word. there's a lot of skill sets he has that I don't have, or talent that he has that I don't have. He is much more the visionary. Okay. He is more the risk taker yep. than I am. I'm more conservative. Um, his true skill. I mean, it, it's a very dynamic person. I mean, uh, and I don't want to say this was his skill. And he didn't have the, he had all the oh, skills, all the, yeah. but this is where he shined so much. He was so good in front of a crowd, so good. Personable. The per, you know, Charismatic. he can sell the idea. That's right. Okay. So That's we divided cool. our 
our workload in a sense, mm -hmm. his job was to go find the money. Yes. My job was to spend the money. And manage the money. I, well, I had a whole lot more fun spending money than raising the money. Yeah. But he was, he was the outside of the business. The face. I was yeah. in the shop, you did know, making a Did he parts. naturally gravitate to that because he was just good at it? He, he, and you naturally gravitated to your deal because you were good at it? Or did you two look at each other and say, listen, I suck at this. You're really good at that and vice versa. Let's just divide and conquer. Yeah. No. I I don't recall us ever saying, this is the way we're going to divide it. It just gravitated that way. Yeah. I enjoy the hands-on building an airplane. Mm -hmm. I spend all of my time on the floor. Yeah. And I don't know if anybody can say they enjoyed raising money, but he definitely enjoyed being in front of the crowd. Yeah. He was so good at it that we gravitated to everything outside. So, you know, the marketing and sales and all of that gravitated all to him. Now, he, he was the CEO. I mean, he was the boss. Mm -hmm. I was the little brother following along. But I gravitated to what I really enjoy, and that was building the airplane. I wanted to physically build the airplane. Typically what you really enjoy, you're good at because you have yeah. passion for it. Okay. That's, I just wanted to know what skill set, because it took two of you to make this successful. Obviously a lot of, a lot of other employees and I don't want to undermine their work, but the two guys that have got the neck on the chopping block yeah. and the ones that are, you know, I always say there's a big fucking difference between signing the front of the check and the back of the check. When you sign the front of a check, <clears throat> your neck's on the chopping block. Yep. And when you sign the back of the check, you're you're typically not on that chopping block. So there's a difference of, of skin right. in the game, risk, et cetera. And I just was curious of what his skill set was or roles and responsibilities as opposed to you and so forth, okay? So let me fast forward just a little bit here. You've now perfected the parachute. It's on the plane. You think you've got a home run at this point? Oh yeah. And do you have a home run? Uh. <laughs> Yes and no. Yes, yes and no. Okay. I mean, Mark. So you take it to the first air show, correct? We you did, take this. We, you, we you, introduced you, it as a mock-up. hadn't yet flown. We were just, in a sense, getting started. But we introduced what we were going to build at the Oshkosh EAA air show in '94. So we didn't fly the airplane till the beginning of '95. We didn't get certified till the end of '98, and our first delivery was in '99. Truly, four years almost. So. But we introduced it. We knew we had a home run. We had an airplane that, without doubt, was going to change the industry. We didn't know we could do it yet. And in doing it, you know, we had to certify. We had to figure out how to get the parachute on and actually make it work. Everything come together. We had to get it so certified. You, got of, you still got a lot of hoops to jump through. Oh yeah. And you got to still. This is the part that a lot of people don't get. You still got to survive the financial part of this. You still got to do the R and D is is got to be incredibly expensive. All these people and engineers and yep. and smart people that are on payroll. Yeah. You know, I always joke about people ask about how do I sleep and honestly, until I retired, before I retired, mm -hmm. I didn't sleep worth a shit because you're constantly worried about money. Yep. How you're going to pay people? How you're going to Catch a, you know, keep ahead of the money trail from constantly, you know, stealing from Peter to pay Paul. And I think a lot of people that never ran a business or owned a business completely overlooked that. They see of the money coming through 
and they have no idea of the money going out. You, you know what I mean? Like, like at one of my tours, I'll get, you know, a couple thousand people to show up. I've got a break. I, my break even point is 180,000. So I'll, I've got to make $180,000 in sales to even think about breaking even. Not even make a profit at this point. So anything under 180,000, I lose my ass. Anything over, if I do 200, I made 20 grand profit. Yeah. But when people stand back in the crowd and they see all these cash registers ringing, they're like, holy shit, this motherfucker's making bank. You know, yeah. it's just easy just to be Clinton Anderson, rake this shit in. Uh, they don't have any idea of the overhead that goes out. The 40 employees that we flew in yep. and hotels for 40 people, meals for 40 people, tour managers there's a lot to this that goes on obviously on your scale it's way way bigger than what i was doing but i think it's a point that i wanted to make is that it's easy to always see the gross of what people are bringing in you know do some quick calculations in your head oh they're selling 50 planes these these guys are making bank that four years or five years that you were in r d getting this some bitch off the ground you're trying to survive and make payroll. So you're doing that through military contracts. How are you keeping, how are you keeping the bankers off your ass at this point? It's, uh, it's going to everybody that you can think of or find that does have capital. An, an investable amount of capital. Mm -hmm. And literally, Alan spent all of his time raising, raising money. And you're accountable to these people, correct? Oh, yeah. Like, you've got to get them a return. You've got to get them a return on their money. You've got to answer to them. So you two yeah. have really got bosses. Oh, yeah. You own the company, but you're sure as shit not really the ones owning it. So whoever's right. writing your checks are right, owning it to some right, degree, right, correct? Right. And you, I think that's just something that a lot of people oversee. They don't look at those parts, uh, Dale. Does that make sense? It, yeah, because you, when you look at all the businesses out there in the world, the ones that you hear about are the home runs. Yes, you know, and you, yes. you know, you got uh, Apple and yeah. Amazon and, you know, it's like, oh, this is going to be easy. Yeah. And it wasn't easy for them and it isn't easy for no, anybody else. It's never. And easy. when there's a couple that are successful, there's thousands that weren't. That's right. So let's move forward here a little bit. You actually now have got through your R&D. You got the son bitch working. Parachutes coming out like a trooper. Everybody's surviving. Wives are high-fiving the husbands. We're all going to live. We have a heart attack. Everybody's happy. When's your first plane ready to sell? Uh, so it's the it, it's basically five years after the I time know, five years. But what year is that now? So it's 99. 99. So you've got yep. some. I can walk up and with a check and buy one, correct? I'm talking about that time. Yep. So when you're ready, so in the meantime of that five years, are you allowed to take orders? Are you allowed to take deposits? Yep. That's yeah, industry do. standard. Like you just tell a customer, hey, Clinton, it's a $700,000 plane, but we'll happily take a hundred grand from you. But understand it could be four years before delivery. That's yep. industry standard. That, yep. That's, yep. that's kosher. That's like it's anything. I mean, you see it with the car companies okay, right now. Okay, fair enough. You want to go buy, uh, you know, the new yep. electric cars that are all coming out. You're putting out deposit. You're putting a be, deposit. Okay. To get in line. So you guys aren't doing anything that's outside of industry norms. Okay. Right. But what the benefit. But it's a risk because we hadn't done the. I mean, we're. Yeah. You could we're, lose, it, the investor could lose that money. You could go bankrupt. It, yeah. You know, we're different than yeah. putting a deposit on a new jet that's coming out by Gulfstream. That's right. If Gulfstream says it's going to happen, it's going to happen. Two kids in a barn, maybe not so much. <laughs> So they're putting a risk, yeah. you know, yeah, I'm going to yeah. give you a couple of thousand bucks to get in line. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not, 
Oh, yeah. I get it. I, I fully get <laughs> that. Not easy for those people to do that either. Yes. But through, through this, you know, so as I look back now through our company's history, you know, and you see the changes that you go through. We were a couple of kids being mm -hmm. experimenters. Yes. Then we, were, we became, in a sense, a development company. We were developing yep. a product that we understood what it needed to be, but we had to develop that. Then you go, all of a sudden, we start to be able to build an airplane, and now it's like, well, now we gotta be able to sell this thing. So you kind of turn into a sales company and a marketing company, oh, yeah. and you're really good at that, and then, then all of a sudden you sell a whole bunch, and now, wait a minute, we can't build them at the rate, and our quality is, you know, it's all of these other things. Okay, now you're back to, yeah. you're a manufacturing company. Then you end up with a couple of thousand airplanes in the field where there, there are customers. There's nothing more important than taking care of them. Thing. Now all of a sudden it's like everything is focused on, well, we got to make sure we service them and market it enough to, you know, so that, so each aspect of that importance doesn't diminish one, but the company keeps changing as you're growing oh, yeah. through that. It's evolving. And the part that, we underestimated. Yes, and tell I me. I want to hear some of the struggles. I want to. This is what I want to focus on now a little bit. Is is you know paraphrasing a little bit. The plane's ready to sell. It's proven. It's a home run out the door. People can buy one, etc. Okay, we're going to pick that up a little bit after that. But I want to know more about these growing pains as you're growing. And there's lots of them, so I don't expect you to bring them all up. But if you could name the top two or three for at least me personally, and again, I was never at the level you guys are at, but I always said the growing too fast is almost crippling. Yep. And that's what happened to me a lot in the early years. Yep. I was growing so quickly, almost doubling, tripling every year. I just couldn't keep up with the son bitch. You know what I mean? I couldn't stay ahead of it enough to get good at it you know it was it was too much growth is almost as crippling as no growth at all yep. and that was for me on a small scale so if you could name some of the biggest challenges you 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 wish you knew about or you faced tell me what they are tell me some of your greatest you know failures fuck well, ups the, things that didn't work the growth the cost to grow mm -hmm. It is we underestimate? I think everybody underestimates. I think they do. And every business, I think, still underestimates it yep. today. It's like we're going to grow. The cost to grow is enormous. Yes. So in a sense, you're 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 creating a hole, a debt. Yes. The debt hole isn't anywhere near the bottom when your product comes out. Mm -hmm. And the way that I look at it is, it costs, you know. Today, to develop an airplane, it's going to cost several hundred million dollars. It's going to cost every bit of that to put it into production and get it going. And it costs every bit of both of those. So let's say it's $200 million to develop an airplane. It costs $200 million to get it into production. It costs $400 million to support that product. Yeah. So it's, you know, you got a product that's like, well, now all I got to do is build two of them or three of them. I just got to build more. That should be easy. No. That ain't easy. Not at all. And now I got thousands of customers out there. Well, all of these customers, first of all, you have to keep developing the, the product, whatever product. You got to keep making it better and better and better because what you want is your customers to always want your next product, always be a part of the next product. 
they have to, in a sense, be heard. How do you make an airplane better? The customer says, I don't like this, this is a problem, yeah. or this broke, or this didn't last. Okay, I make it better. You know, as with any product, you sit back and say, yeah. you know what, I had that early product and this didn't work. I told the company this didn't work, now look what they did. Holy crime needs am I smart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that guy's a customer for life with a problem. So that, you know, back to, we introduced in 99. We knew we weren't at the bottom of our spending yeah. hole. But that's where I think we underestimated what it took to ramp up, yeah. how quickly we could ramp up, what it cost to ramp up. Yeah. And, and keep it up. You know, that's where you put something together and you're, you got some makeshift tools and you can negotiate the tool to make sure that it comes out right when you're building one at a time. And maybe you can kind of do it when you're building three, four at a time, but now all of a sudden, when you have to produce 100 of them, makeshift doesn't work. You're hiring somebody off the street and you're teaching them. It's really hard if your tools need manipulating. Yeah. You know, it's not just, I'm gonna bolt this tool together and what comes out is right now, you know. So that ramp up was huge. Was, was huge. Do you wanna be, do you wanna, do you want to be a slave to the bankers or you want to be enslaved to the private equity people? Who's the bigger devil? Um, the private equity is by far the most expensive, far yes. more expensive. They want a than bigger a, return on their money. Yeah, far yes, more expensive. I'd agree with that, yes. Than a, a bank. But a private equity is uh, earning the allowing, we're allowing them to earn all the big money because there is a flexibility with a private equity. What, what do you mean by flexibility? Be more specific. They let you do what you want. They don't make you jump through as many hoops to get the money. Give me an example of flexibility. Give me to Flexibility is, uh, especially with an early investor, you come with a plan, this is gonna cost 10 million bucks. Nope, it costs 11. There's flexibility, it's not Okay, you just spent my $10 million. I'm going to bankrupt you tomorrow. Yes. With okay. a bank, you have yes. covenants. And yes. you hit those, or they're going to call your notes. That's right. Yes. An investor is looking at it going, well, spending my money isn't how I get it back. So they're there saying, okay, you need another million bucks. There's flexibility. It never comes cheap. Yes. That extra oh, million yeah. is more expensive than the first 10. Hell yes. But it's, you can you can usually get it. Yes. And you want to have investors yeah. that aren't giving you their last dollar yes. because then you're both done. Yes. With a bank, and right or wrong, you know, and yes. when you create enough of a banking relationship, and typically yes. banks are great to work with if you don't need their money. Yes. <laughs> Isn't that if funny? you need their money. They're complete assholes, yes. <laughs> well, there there are rules, yes. you know, and they, they're Isn't that being funny? Watched when you and, don't need a bank, they love you. Oh my and God, when you need them, <laughs> when they need, when you need them, and they know you need them, they'll make you do a song and dance and jump through the hoops. Isn't yeah. that funny? Well, yeah. and often they don't care. Mm. You know, for a bank, you know, yeah. shutting somebody down is like, oh, okay, that was a bad run, but you're done. And my with an investor, <laughs> yeah, it's usually a smaller group. It's not regulated in the, the sense it's. You're sitting down and communicating with them, and that's the other thing. If you're in, if you're in bed with investors, mm -hmm. and you might think that they're uh, snake oil mm -hmm. salesmen because they're going to charge you twenty five percent, where the the loan is eight percent. That's right. 
you know what? You stay in bed. You communicate. You make sure they know every single thing because if you need 10 or if you ask for 10 and you need 11 and they know every single thing coming along. They know you're it, not pissing the money away, yeah. It, and it's not a surprise. Mm -hmm. And instead of 20% for the 10, then that next million is going to be 25%. If it's a surprise, that next million is 100%. Yes. To, you know, it's just, yeah, yeah. And it's back to, you know, communicate, yeah. communicate. You know, yeah. bad news yeah. early yes. is a lot better than bad yeah. news late. One of the things that I did with my business, and there's nowhere near on the scale of what you were doing, is I, over the years, had many opportunities to take on investors, private equity investors, etc. And it was tempting. A lot of money there. It was tempting because one of my Achilles heels growing my business was I knew I was better than my competitors, but they had much more money than me. I was broke, I was young, yep. I didn't have any credit. You know, I didn't realize when I came to America at 21, no credit's worse than bad credit. They'd loan a bum on the street with bad credit, way more money than me having no credit, you know yep. what I mean? And uh, it was very frustrating me for the first 10 years because I knew I could beat them, I knew I was better than them, I knew I could outmarket them, I knew I had a better product, but I didn't have the marketing dollars. I didn't have, I was doing everything in-house ourselves, our own marketing team, our own, you know, we were basically doing things on the cheap to get by because we didn't have big dollars. So when people came along and said, hey, I'll give you X amount of dollars and so forth, and that'll get you up, up and running a lot more, a lot more marketing, advertising, et cetera. It was sure damn tempting, but in the back, and I'm so glad I didn't do it. On the back of my mind, Dale, I didn't want to be on. Yep. In the back of my mind, I said, at some point, this son bitch is going to tell me what to do and how to do it and when to run it. Yep. And I can't live like that. I'm too, call me stupid, hard-headed, driven, whatever you want to call it, positive or negative. I had to be the captain of my own ship. So I, ref I refused a lot of that. And I'm so glad I did because one of my competitors early when I got started took on a private equity investor that had, but bought half his company. It ended up ruining the guy because the guy basically ran off all his good people, pillaged and raped all out of the business for 15 years and left the original owner with basically jack shit. You know, he's divorced now, not even relevant. I don't have a pot to piss in. But in his peak, it was hard for me to look back and he was making a shit ton of money. And it's hard for me as a young guy looking like, man, I can be, I'm better than this guy. But all that money came from a private equity investor. Now, they'll, the one thing I've noticed about equity investors, they will never lose as a general rule. They make their money. They sure get their 23% off the top and make sure they get it first. They get yeah, paid first. Get paid Every first. single time they get paid first. Um, but I just, then eventually when I got enough money to loan from banks, I liked the bank part better for me because yep. they weren't going to be in my day-to-day -day business as much telling me what to do and where to do it. The only time they did do that to me, I only lost money in my business in 23 years, one year. I lost money. And then they came in, which really pissed me off because it's like, you know what, for 22 years I've made a profit. For 22 years I've paid my note, paid my interest, never gave you an ounce of trouble, paid my shit on time. And the one year I lose money, but I still make all my payments. I still, you never wait a day late for your money. Yep. Yep. You some bitches want to walk in here and tell me how to run a business? Go fuck yourselves. You know what I mean? Yep. It got, it really annoyed me, Dale, 
but they did that to me. That one year that I lost money, they walk in there and start asking me, where's your business plan? What are you doing? How's, son of a bitch, you forget the 22 fucking years I did really good? You, you forget the years that I never, every year, not years, but every time I never missed a bank payment. So I was very anti-bank when I retired, you know what I mean? Because I never wanted to, to go through that again. Um, but yeah, that's, that's something I pride myself on is I never took them on. But in your case, you couldn't have survived without taking them on. You were such a large scale from where I was at. You couldn't survive, I don't suspect, unless you took on equity investors, unless you had banks, because you're just dealing with so much money that you can't build your business without that capital to do that. Right. It's today to develop an airplane, even the simplest airplanes, it's a couple hundred million dollar investment. So let me ask you this question, because I can know it for myself. If you said to me at 47, Clinton, start your business again now, I wouldn't do it because things have changed so much in 28 years. It's so much more expensive for me to start my business today and be Clinton Anderson today. We're back, you know, before it was a VHS tape and $2.50, I could record something with a camera and get up and running. You know what I mean? Today, it's, a, it's way more expensive. I don't think I could do it today. No. If I had to ask no. you that question, if you had to start Cirrus again today, you and your brother, could you do it in today's market? With things being so much more expensive, is it possible to pull it off? Um, I was in I the right place, Dale. I, I was in the right place. People will say it's luck. I was in the right place at the right time and saw an opportunity. Yeah. And I jumped in a river and paddled like some bitch. I worked very, very hard, but I paddled. But, but now I would not say in my world that river, that river's there, but there's no current. When I got over here in 1997, there was a river of money flowing. Yeah. It was flowing hard. And I was smart enough to see the river, jump in with my canoe, but I just didn't wait for the current to take me down. I paddled like my life depended on it. Today, if you told a Clinton Anderson to get into my world now, there's still a river there, but it ain't flowing anywhere. It's stagnant water. So you would have to paddle that some bitch all the way down to the end because there's nothing taking you there. When I got into it, the, it, was, it was a flow of money. You know what I mean? So what would be different if you had to get back into it now, you and your brother? So, um, first of all, it's two different questions on would I do it again or Good, quit somebody. Yep. And I think there is still a market. Yep. I know there is. There's still startup companies. There's still, there's people now that look at us and they're out raising money saying, well, Cirrus did it. Yep, that's good. And therefore we can do it. And and it's true. I mean, I I think it can be done. It's, it is a different model than, than what we did. It is bigger, bigger numbers. It is more complex. I mean, Alan and I, working in a barn, created our first airplane. That would be pretty tough today because what makes aviation today so much better than it was 20 years ago is all the electronics. It's yeah. how simple it is to fly. It's, you know, but that's huge money compared. You're not going to find in a junkyard yeah. the avionics. You're not going to find in a junkyard control system that you yeah. need today. So it, it's a bigger leap. But without a doubt, there's somebody working on a project someplace in the aviation industry that I might look back at right now and say, oh, that's the craziest thing I ever saw. Like Cessna was saying about us. Yes. 25 years ago, Cessna's going, 
these guys are nuts. We don't have to worry about them. It'll never work. <laughs> well, guess what? It worked, yeah, yeah. and on our end of on our end of the industry, we're kicking their butts. Now, yes. granted, Cessna's yes hugely successful. It's yes. a great company. Yes, but where we build airplanes, I think they've kind of said, "Okay, Cessna, uh, Cirrus, you can have it." And we are the best thing for Cessna. Yes. Because they start in our airplane, they move to our Vision Jet, and what do we all do with kind of everything? Oh, well, now I can, I can afford more. I can afford to go farther, fi faster. I can afford to take not just four mm -hmm. adults, you know, a kid. I can take, you know, I can take my whole company. I can, you know. Yeah. So we are feeding them a lot of customers. Yes. But, you know, each company... You keep growing because yeah. of those costs, and I, there's somebody creating some something now that I can see the next trainer coming along, and we're going to be there going, go ahead, come on, feed yeah. us the customer yes. because they don't want to fly around with two; they want four people. You know, yeah. <laughs> so you know it's there. Would I do it again? <clears throat> the reason that 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 question is almost impossible to answer. I have enough that, yeah, I'm, I'm retired. Mm -hmm. Patty and I, we obviously can't spend stupid, mm -hmm. but you can do what you need I'm do. not worried that we're going to run out of money mm -hmm. before we yeah. die. Uh, we're going to be able to have food on our table. You know. yeah. But when I started, I didn't have anything. Yes. Today, I have something. Yes. I have something to lose. Yes. You're much less risk... Uh, I, I'm much more or less risky the older I got. Yeah, because I have something. I have something to lose. I also don't have that energy anymore. No, you don't. And that's, yeah, you're right about that. There's there's a special decade, isn't there, between 20 and 30. 20 and 30, you're the energizer bunny. You, you know, you have a certain amount of stupidness because if you knew how difficult it was, you probably wouldn't take yeah. it on. Yeah. That's one of my favorite lines about me is, is if I would have known what I went through over 28 years to get to where I was, I probably wouldn't have done it. If you would have actually sat me down and said, this is all the stress, this is all the bullshit, this is all the debt, this is all the heartache, this is the two marriages, this, you know, there's a lot of shit that goes on with this to be successful. You probably wouldn't do it. But right. when you're that young, you're dumb enough, stupid enough, got enough energy to to not to overlook any of that. You know, you know what it means to overlook that. But that's why I said don't I always tell young people, don't piss away your twenty to thirty. That's your decade to get your shit together. That's your decade to work hard. That's your decade to really focus on your career and your and get a base to your career. And, and establishment so that in your 30s, you still have to work hard, but you don't have to do those insane hours. Every decade obviously gets worse with your energy. Yeah. And there's a startup that I'm working with a little, and I like to advise yes. the next generation yes. of people that are working on some of these things. And it it's tough because, you know, if, if I knew today, you know, if I knew then what I knew today, would I do it? You know, the answer is no, because it's yeah. like, well, we were naive enough yes, to, try it. to try it. Yes. And the way Alan always put it is, we're dumb enough to start, smart enough to finish. Yeah. Because it does take that blind, naive faith, yes, you know, I can go do this. So when you're working with somebody who's starting a business and they're they're going through and they got these, you know, ah, here's what we're going to do and this is how quick, and you're sitting back going, 
No way in hell. Yes. You do not have a clue what you're in for. If you say that, you don't want to quench that that drive. Yes. He's got to believe that he can do it. Mm -hmm. So instead, it's just nudging without saying, this is crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, let's go let's go do it. You you got to have that drive and then you got to be there to help, you know, steer them some places without telling them reality of, mm -hmm. you know, you have no idea how much work you just signed up for. Yeah. And how much work for the next 20 years. And I don't want to tell you because you might say, "Yeah, you're right. I want to, you got to and then you won't finish. You got to finish." And, so so let's take it to a little bit of a different side. So you know, it's easy for people to focus on your home run, what you made a lot of money from, what you get famous from, what you're known from. But every company, every entrepreneur has got their fair share or a lot, really, of just plain ass stupid ideas, plain ass things that didn't make any money, plain ass things that looking back on it, you have to chuckle and say, well, that was never going to work. But but you tried it anyway. If you could name one or two things that you could say to yourself, man, I lost a shit ton of money doing that, or or it was a good idea, but it was never going to implement. Can you can you name anything off the top of your head that is a is a funny failure that people could get a chuckle out of? Because again, it's easy to it's easy to look at your successes when you're a successful company and say and 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 almost give that uh, perception that it was it was like here's a perfect one for me, not on the scale of you, of course, but. One of my greatest ideas, the stupidest greatest ideas when I was young in my business is uh, I thought I had this catalog, you know, back in the day I had a, you know, a five page catalog. This is long before we did the internet and everything like that. And, and I did a competition that if you buy a, buy a halter and lead rope, you go in the draw to win a $25,000 horse. You know what I mean? And we had this thing on the back of this five page catalog. Well, that's fucking illegal. It's gambling. We didn't know, but somebody yeah. turned me in to the Ohio State Lottery Board or some bullshit in Ohio when I lived there. And we got a nasty letter in the fucking mail that said, you can't be basically being a lottery system promising a prize if they buy something from you. We broke the law. I was young, we were dumb, we didn't know. I thought it was a fucking awesome idea. Yeah. Well, then I'm outside, outside in the dumpsters at one o'clock in the morning, I'm throwing out $35,000 of printed catalogs that I can't use anymore. I have to cease and desist. The state's up my ass. So I just printed $35,000 of catalogs. Now, to your company and to me now, that's a piss in the ocean. But in those days, that might as well be 350000 you know, yes, 3.5 yeah. million. That was a lot of money back for me back then. And I am literally putting $35,000 into two dumpsters. That hurt. That hurt pretty good. You know, it really did hurt financially and emotionally. Can you, but I have to laugh at it now, but do you have anything similar you can, you can talk about that was a, a, a stupid idea, but at the time you thought it was great and you lost a lot of money from it or just lost time on it even? Well, there are a number of things that we lost, lost time on. You, you know, when you, you say that they're a stupid idea, it's, it's, it's hard to, because even your catalog, that's a great idea. Your lottery. Yeah. It's a great idea. <laughs> Didn't realize it was illegal. No, it, I didn't. It, it, there's the I didn't timing. have enough money to have an in-house attorney. No. I didn't have enough money to have a board of directors. I'm just a kid thinking of cool shit to do. Right. They're very hard. So when you look back at things like that, oh, yeah, there's there's products that uh, uh, we were changing our whole production line for a product that we were sure was just about ready. Mm -hmm. And it's now starting down the production line. And this is going to change aviation again. Yeah. 
and we just invested millions and millions and millions of dollars, and we're about to go live with it. The company has turned. The ship has started to turn, and then they're like, oh, this ain't gonna work. This, you know, yeah. we got a problem here. Stop it here, take these airplanes, you know, convert what you can, push the rest into the dumpster and yeah we've had a we've had a few of those you know we've yes. taken we took a flyer once on a on a deal that was going to happen and because of the timeline and yes getting the deal done we had to produce this number of airplanes by this date and we're led on for on and on and on and yep it's done it's done all we got to do is sign you know done 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 well now we got to start production to fill these airplanes to only have it never get done and now you got you know 30 airframes is like okay now you're spending as much to build them to change them back into a sellable product and you're like why who in their right mind would actually start to be there yeah on a promise you know it's yeah. it's being taken down you know and actually when we were out raising money there's so much of that out there yeah. Oh, I love the idea. I'm in. If as soon as you get to this point, I'm in. And then you get to that point. It's like, yeah, okay, but you know, but I, I see the risk. Now you got to get to this point. Yeah. And you get led on until they keep moving the it, until it's like, well, screw this, you know. Yeah. By the time you're in, it's kind of back to the thought of the bank. You won't invest until we absolutely do not need any money. Then you're going to come in and expect this deal. I see the writing. I was like, nope, we're out. You know, move on. So, but yeah, there's. I mean, we've got. You got your fair share of, of of scars and things that didn't make money. Well, we've got our uh, boneyard. Yep. Full of things that we tried that didn't work. Yep. You know, or failed. Uh, didn't meet the yep. the requirements that we put mm -hmm. on out for it that we knew would wouldn't sell then. And you know, you build an air, airframe to try something that mm -hmm. goes into a. You're going down a direction to find out it doesn't work, and mm -hmm. yep, it goes into the boneyard. And yeah, a lot of people got... don't see that. There's a lot of failures for that one success. Let's talk about employees a little bit. One of my weak points um, really was the, the business as far as employees go, meaning that I was always, I always joked, and it's kind of the truth, really. I was really good at making money, horrible at managing it. I was really good at making it and being the front guy like your brother, et cetera. But I could never put the right money people in as it for most of my career. Now I've got it right. But for most of my career, the people handling that money and spending that money, I could never, they weren't very good. Let's just say it like that. You know, I, I was really good at making money, but not so good about keeping it and, and putting it in the right place. And that was just pure, through purely lack of experience on my end, hiring the right people and managing the right people and all that kind of stuff. So that was my Achilles heels for many years is the employees because a little bit different and, and well, different and not different. You know, when your brother's out raising capital, he's away, but you were back in the factory managing the, managing the flock keeping an eye on the flock, making sure everybody was doing what they were supposed to do. I'm broad spectrum here, you know, big brush here. And he was out raising the capital. My Achilles heel was I had to, I couldn't be both places at once. You know what I mean? So when I'm out on tour, I'm touring. I'm, you know, like a band. Think of a band playing, they're touring, etc. Yeah. 
they're making all this money. It's all coming in. But the cats are away. You know, cats away, the mice will play. There was nobody back at home managing the money, making sure the employees were doing what they were supposed to do, etc. And that was one of my biggest frustrations for many years because I didn't have a wife. My first wife was involved in the business in the early days. But after that, I didn't have a significant other like you had your brother. You know what I mean? Where... He, you know, he could be out raising money and you were in the back, you were back at home keeping the factory moving, so to speak. I never had that. I couldn't be in two places at once. And that cost me a lot over the years. So, and once I got better at hiring the right professionals and putting them in the right jobs, it certainly got easier. But you two kind of started from nothing. You didn't have any employees. So what was your biggest challenge in growing the business and hiring the right people? Obviously, in the beginning, you were hiring your own employees from the very first one. Obviously, in the end, you probably had a hiring department, a headhunting department, whole HR. They handled that, and you might come in for the upper-level people, interview of them after the second or third interview. But the vast majority of them you're not seeing anymore. But in the early days, you were. What kind of lessons could you tell me or the audience about hiring people? Some people got some really good theories on it, and some people don't. Um, quick story on hiring. Uh, the very first employee we hired still works at the company. That's so we've got, you know, 25, 2,400 employees now, something like that. And he's still there. Uh, it, it's probably an appropriate story for, for where I'd go on employees, but he was a local pilot in the Baraboo, Wisconsin area. He lived on a farm, yep. had a little grass strip on the farm, and... Uh, on the weekends, he would fly over you know, for something to do. He'd fly over, and Alan and I are working on this airplane. And you know, he heard that we were there, came over to see what we're doing. You know, stood around the first weekend, came there. You know, kind of watched us work and talked a little. He did that three or four weeks in a row. He'd come over and he's just kind of standing around. And we're getting into the the fall time frame of '86, and and. Uh, it's like, well, Dennis, if you're going to be here every day, you know, why don't you help? You know, so then he was coming over every weekend through the, the rest of the year. He'd come over and work Friday, uh, Saturday and Sunday. You know, and Monday, he's got to go back to his regular job. It was right after the first of the year of 87. So that first Monday, yeah. <clears throat> whatever, or the first, you know, the first day after the holiday, whatever that day was. He shows up on our doorstep and like, Dennis, what are you doing here? <laughs> Why aren't you at work? And he goes, well, I quit my job. I'm like, quit your job? Well, now what are you going to do? He goes, I'm going to work for you. <laughs> and Alan, he looked at me and he said, oh, we have an employee. Right. Now what do we do? Yeah. I mean, we had no clue. That's my point. So there's no a lot of growing pains there. Yeah. I want to know if you could give some examples of growing pains. Yes. Well, you know, there's like, you know, how do we pay them? You know, or what lesson, that maybe mean? more than growing All pains, of that. but lessons in hiring. <clears throat> so, but you know, the, the, the lesson that we learned in those days, we had some you know, impressive people that wanted to come in and tell us how the world was gonna work. Yeah. And we were too young, too stubborn, too set in our ways. And we didn't near, need to hear from the expert mm -hmm. that we were, a couple of idiots, yeah. you know, and 
We literally had one guy come in and tell us everything we're doing is crazy, that the greatest airplane ever built is a Bonanza, and if a Bonanza could be made better, Beechcraft would have done it. Like, well, you know, the Bonanza now is 70 years old. I think yeah. we have learned a thing or two, yeah. you know, but the, the, the point is it, it depends a lot on what stage you're at. When we started, what was the most important thing to us is somebody with passion. Yes. Somebody who could see the vision, somebody who could buy into it. If somebody walked through the door saying, I'm looking for a, you know, I got some skills here and I'm looking for a paycheck. Or, you know, yes, had that type of attitude, you know. Well, I'm here to see if I want to work for you or if I'm going to go work for yeah. the next guy. It's like, oh, go work for the next That's guy. Right. I don't need somebody who's here weighing us out. I need somebody who walks through the door and says, wow, what you guys are doing is cool and this is going to change the world. I want to be a part of it. Yeah. And we got that with Dennis. We got that with our current president of innovation and operation. Came to us for a summer job when he was in college and Never left. Never left. Yeah. He was an intern in college. And, and he, he, they came with that passion of, I believe in this. It's not a job. I believe in it. I said the story, you know, the guy who's Tuesday night says, well, I've got my 40 hours in already. Yes. You know, you're not going to find an employee that says, you, you know what, I'm going to work two 20-hour days. Yes. And show up the next day. Mm -hmm. It's passion. Yes. They have to be believing. It's not a job. It's yeah. so much more than that. Yes. We hired then experts as we were ramping up. And we had a couple of great guys who saw the passion, saw the, the ability. Maybe we're, you know, one of them that I'm, I'm thinking of came in. He was at the end of his career. Mm -hmm. And he brought with him a lifetime of knowledge in this industry yes. industry but it was like i see this is going to be this this is kind of like my last swan song yeah what you guys are doing it's going to change the world i'm not going to try and change that but i'm coming to say you know i've been in, at this for 40 years but he wanted to end his career with something cool something cool yeah. he was great we had a couple of guys that you know well we've been through it we know it we know exactly how to do this and actually, as I think back, you know, the failures were more, oh, this guy's the expert. He really does know. Let him go do it. You know, everything we're doing was new. There aren't any experts. He had been through it with somebody else. And, you know, we, we hired a production guy that came from one of the large yeah. companies that are out there. This is the way you do it. Well, you know what? He had an infrastructure and a company that had been around for 50 years. Mm -hmm. That's the way you do it there. Yeah. We have none of that here. We're starting from zero. Production number one, it, it's, you know, the, it's not expertise. It's, you know, and depending on the stage of the company, that type of thing, it comes down to somebody believe in this. Do, are they willing to take the extra step to be there? And when you're a young, small company, if they don't have that passion also, that doesn't mean that they're going to work for free like we no, were. No. But if they don't have that, if they can't demonstrate a belief that they're not ask, worth let me having. Let this question. You know, we are who we hang around. So I hang around a lot of people like yourself and Randy that are, that are smart men, entrepreneurial, 
uh, very successful in their business, made a lot of money, made a lot of mistakes, managed a lot of people, etc. And I keep hearing this, and I see it in my own world, in, in the horse world, and I talk to other people in my world, and I want to know if it's different in your world, being aviation is completely opposite to horses. But I don't, I keep hearing and I see it is, is the same thing over and over again. And I'm curious to see if you see it in your industry, that the young people just don't want to work. Kids that are coming out of college now don't grasp the concept of start at the bottom and work your way up to the top. They don't grasp it. It doesn't compute with their head. They're going to think they're going to start a new career with a $100,000 a year job. And they're very delusional yep. in my world. I want to know, is that even, do you see similarities in aviation? Or, you know, it's a completely different industry. So you can't just say, oh, that's just a horse thing. These motherfuckers are completely delusional. Like I put up a saddling job, which is an entry level job in my world. Kind of like cleaning the, the bathroom. You know what I mean? Cleaning the janitor job at $60,000. I couldn't get a kid to fucking do it. 60 grand to groom a horse, which is like, if I walked into your offices, I got to mop the floor of the bathrooms, wipe down the mirrors, empty the fucking trash. A, a relatively mindless job that doesn't take a lot of skill set. Couldn't do it for 60 grand. Couldn't do it. They wouldn't work for it. Wouldn't do it. Yeah. I worked two years of my career for free from 15 to 17. I worked for free just for the experience, just to get my foot in the door. Now, 28 years later, I make millions from that two years of experience now. I didn't know it at the time. I was just wanting to learn, but I make millions from it now. I couldn't get a kid to come in and work for free for all the money in the world now. I just wanted to say, do you see that in your world or is it only in my world? Um, it, it's definitely not, on, it, it's not in, only in your world and I think it is systemic. Mm -hmm. everywhere so yeah I mean we've had some of the most talented engineers come through that are willing to do anything and you know and this is back in the beginning where they're they're a part of something and yeah and it's everything to them today and it is the the college kids that trained or the person who's kind of taken his Path through education said, I'm, I kind of cubby hold myself. I'm, I'm going to be a mechanical engineer. I'm going to be this or whatever it is. Boom. All of a sudden it's, yeah, the people leave college thinking that <laughs> insane starting expectations. Yeah. The other thing I see is it's so easy right now to move a job, especially with the way everything's on a computer right now. And we just let the whole world work from home. Yeah. Somebody doesn't like their job, they're working at Cirrus, and at five o'clock they log off at Cirrus and they log on with somebody else and they now work for somebody else. There's no emotion, there's no attachment, there's no interaction. You don't go to the office, you don't know who you work for or, or why, it's just a job. And that's, that's a scary yes, look ahead. I would agree with it that. Just, <clears throat> If there isn't anything other than I do this because I've been given a job and I get a paycheck, the quality, the innovation, the drive, it's all gone. Yes. On the side where they're not hired for a specific skill, you know, mm -hmm. so our manufacturing people, 
we have to train them. Yeah. And it takes, time, it takes time to become really good at their yeah. jobs. And they get paid more and more as they progress this by, you know, the breadth of knowledge that yeah. they, they learn. And their value for us keeps going up because they can do more, they're, they're more valuable. That's right. The number of people that come through the door, the turnover rate is astronomical mm -hmm. because they walk in the door, they work there for two days or three days or Worse than that, they work there for a month. You yeah. invest the first six months that somebody's there, it's all investment. Yes, yeah, very much so. You know, or maybe a year, but you're there investing in them. And I'm like, eh, I've decided I don't want to do this. I'm gonna I'm gonna walk I'm gonna go work at the gas station across the street. Mm -hmm. Like, oh my God, where's you know, it's so easy. You yeah. walk out and you walk into the next place. Life isn't that easy. There's going to be a rude awakening. Clinton's grabbing a cocktail and we'll be right back. Get yourself one and enjoy this short clip. I have a rule that says is I ask myself, everybody that I interact with, am I getting positive energy from this person? Anytime me, like me and you interacting right now, when I walk out of this building, like I did last time, if I feel like I got positive energy from being around you, I enjoyed your company, I enjoyed the conversation, I enjoyed the experience, I'm going to do it again. If I didn't enjoy the positive energy or I got no, you drained me. You just fucking, I was like an emotional tampon for you and you just fucking spewed your shit all over me and I sat here and drunk and let you vomit, verbally vomit all over me. I'm never going to see you again. So I ask this question to myself every day for every person I'm thinking of. Do I get, as a general rule, positive energy from being around this person? If the answer is yes, I interact with them more. If the answer is no, I cut them out of my life. So, Dale, we're back from the break, and you said what? That was that point we left on. Yeah, that uh, kids today are in for a rude awakening. What do you think I, that rude I, awakening I is? I don't know if it's just kids. <laughs> but uh, um, the rude awakening is it. Um, it's not so easy to get a job. Mm -hmm. It's not this easy to, to move from place to place. You can't just get up and leave. You know, the, you can't burn bridges behind you because they no longer matter. They do. That's right. I always, I I always the, say this to people. <clears throat> the most valuable thing you'll, I'll say all day, it's not what you do at a job, it's how you leave a job. How you leave a job will be a huge component of how your next job starts. So if you leave on good terms, leave with a good attitude. I always, I always tried to, anytime I left a job, I, I've worked for myself most of my whole life, but any of the times I've left jobs, I always tried to work harder the last month, do more the last month. I always wanted my employer to think, why the fuck did I let this kid go? Yeah. I always wanted them to regret letting me walk out the door. So I always gave them more so that the last thing they remember is, holy shit, this kid was good. So when the next employer called them, because your track record always follows you. Yep. yep. You know, if I could tell any young person anything, listen to this. You will always have your track record follow you. It's like the internet. Be careful what the fuck you put on there because it will there. follow you to death. How you leave an employer will follow you. You might not think it will, but it will. It will, it should, but it doesn't right now. And no. that's one of the things that, you know, the, the job abandonment 
the number of people who just don't show up. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a term also, this quiet quitting, which I'm not quite sure what that means. It's do, do a job bad enough until it's finally okay to leave. I, not quite sure what quiet quitting, but like it, it's not going to be this easy. It shouldn't be this easy. Mm -hmm. And you can see what the way our economy is right now, what the Fed is doing is making sure it's not that easy because the economy was not right. Yes. You know, it hadn't been right for the last three or four yes. years. You know, interest rates shouldn't be zero. Mm -hmm. <laughs> All of these nothing's things, free. <clears throat> nothing's free. All of this is in a sense, coming back yes. right now. Yes, it is. And how do you get inflation under control? You slow the economy down. Guess what happens when you slow the economy down? You can't just walk out the door and expect the job next door. Mm -hmm. You walk out, that might not be there. Mm -hmm. you, know, so I, you know, have another job before yeah. you quit this one. Yeah. Leave with an opportunity to come back. Yeah. Don't just burn a company. Yeah, burn a bridge. <laughs> you know, to me, it's almost easier for young people today to grow the corporate ladder or grow the grow your skill set, it's actually easier to me to stand out now compared to when you were 20, me too, but even you're a little older than me, but 30 years ago, showing up at eight and leaving at five was not a big deal. That was expected. You weren't a hard worker. You weren't a, a go-getting some bitch. You were just, that was like, you better fucking do that. Right. Now, if just to get a kid to show up at eight and stay off the phone all day, stay off yeah. Insta and shitter and Twitter and all the bullshit and just do your job till five, you look like a legend. The bar is so low now, but yep. if you'll actually just go to fucking work and work, I always say this, it's amazing what you can get done in eight hours if you actually work for eight hours. Oh, yeah. Not fuck around, not be on your phone, not texting. Just do your job for eight hours. It's astonishing how much work you can actually get done. So for a young person wanting to get ahead in today's world, I would say it's real easy. Show up first, finish last, stay off your phone, ask questions, do your job to the best of your ability, show some passion, you will rise. I'm yeah. not saying you'll do it in 48 hours, but well, you sure as passion. shit will show rise through the ranks. And most companies now are so desperate for a, for a young person with that skill set of passion, they will train you to make more money. They will pay you to learn more. They, they will develop your skill set. They will actually pay you to get a better education to get to the next level. Yep. But if you'll just show up and stay off the phone and actually engage the job. And and, it, it, and it's disgusting to say, I don't even think eight to five is really a fucking job. You know, compared to where we built these businesses and even your dad came home at five, had dinner by six, went back to the nursing home to nine, nine thirty at night. That's what it takes to be really successful. And so to me, it's even easier to stand out as a great employee now because the bar's so low, Dale, in my opinion. The bar is so low. When I offered that saddling job up for 60000 which again, in my world, is a bit, you don't know horses, is a very low entry job. Everybody flipped out on Facebook. I can't believe you're only paying $60,000 for this job and blah, blah, blah. There was one guy's comment that got on there and he said, "You, all you people on here that are commenting are out of your mind. This is an entry level position with the world's best guy in his field 
think about the opportunities that it would open for you, knowing this guy, being in his company, getting in his good graces, what opportunities could this guy open doors for you? And I yeah. chuckled when I read that and I said, this son of a bitch gets it. Yes. Yeah. I had a girl one time, Dale, uh, walk up to me, a young girl that probably 18, 19 years old, worked for me for about three months. And she walked up to me and she said, I don't want to do this job anymore. I don't like training people. I like horses, but you know, I don't want to deal with the public and people and all that. And I don't want to be here anymore. Very respectful. And me having so many kids just heartless little some bitches quit on me. I said to her, you know, when do you want to leave? Expecting her to say today, tomorrow. She shocked me and she said, I'm going to leave whenever it's good for you. Whenever it's convenient for you to have a good end point for me, whether it's a month, two months, you know, I want to make sure that it's, it doesn't put you in a bind. I said, that's phenomenal. I said, nobody ever does that. I said, I'll tell you what, if you could stay 30 days for me so I could rearrange a few things, I said, I'd really appreciate it. But I said, I'll tell you what I'm going to do for you. I said, do you want to stay in the horse industry? And she said, yes, I want to stay in the horse industry. I just don't want to be here. I said, I'll tell you what I'll do for you. You just name the trainer you want to go work for. Name the trainer, who you want to be. I know them all. I've got their all cell phone numbers. I said, I'm going to get you a job wherever you want to be. She said, really? I said, yeah. She came back to me the next day, gave me a name. I called that trainer up the next day. I said, i got a girl here. She didn't work for me, but she really is good at pa being passionate. She shows a lot of integrity, yeah. a lot of loyalty. I said, you need to hire her. He said, I'll take her instantly. Took her off a phone call. I got that girl four jobs over 10 years. She'd stay at that job two or three years. Then she want to get a new skill set. So she'd go work for a different trainer. She called me back up. Clinton, do you know a guy called this? I said, yeah, I do. Let me give him a call. I got that girl four jobs over 10 years. All because she just handled me the right way. Yep. Yep. She quit didn't, me with integrity. Didn't burn a bridge. She didn't burn a bridge. In fact, I almost think looking back on the conversation, Dale, I think she, she might have even said, I don't even the like bridge. the way you train horses. Like, I think she even went a little further and said, I don't like the way you do things here. But she said it with such respect, I didn't get offended by it. Yeah. And, she, and she quit with such integrity I did nothing but want to help this girl. And I got a four jobs over 10 years with trainers that would, would have been very difficult to get jobs with. There was a waiting list to get into these people. You know, you just couldn't walk in the door. Yep. And I was her gateway. That guy, when he made that comment and he said, think of the opportunities starting an entry level job with this guy, where this guy could take you in the world. I know horse trainers and people in my industry all over the world that I could get people jobs with, and I have. But out of all the people that have quit me over the years, she'd have to be one, that might only been one, two or three out of 28 years that quit me with that kind of integrity. Does that make sense? They quit me yeah. with me wanting to do nothing but helping them because of the way they quit me. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. And, and that's yeah, why you, you never burn a bridge. You, right. you said it, you never burn a bridge. I don't care how much you want to burn the son of a bitch down how much maybe you, you feel like you're entitled to burn that bridge down, whatever you think it is, don't do it. Because right. somewhere, somehow, you always have to cross the fucking bridge that you least expect you will ever need to cross. Yep. Would you agree or yep. disagree with yep. that? Well, it, whether you will or not, why, why take that chance? Why blow it up? Why blow it up? Yep. Just in case you want to cross that bridge again. Yeah. Don't blow it up just because you feel it. In my experience, it's like almost it. like karma. The bridges you think you'll never cross again, 
you seem to always have to cross. It's a yep. weird thing. Yep. The ones you don't want to cross, the ones you think, oh, I'll never need to go do that. Sure as shit, five years, guess who you've got to actually make a phone call to? Yep. And if you don't blow the bridge up, it's pretty easy not to have to eat any crow. Yeah, and you, you made the, the comment, the expectations that kids have, mm -hmm. you know, coming out of college. Uh, last spring, you know, so I, I wintered down in the Phoenix area, and last spring, when the colleges are coming to their graduation and they did a survey of what different kids expected for their their first job, what the salary should be in all of these different fields. And the commentator or the, the newscast person when they're going through these things could not present it with a straight face. It was like, where are they coming from? You know, they're gonna start and I think one of them was they wanted to get into the news, but they want to start at 125,000. It's like, what are they teaching to think that there's opportunities like that? It just, there's an expectation of, it's gonna be easy. I set my price, I go, and in reality, like this girl, that first job is an opportunity to learn. To get, yes, you're getting paid to learn. You're getting and paid you'll to move learn. on to the next one. And then move on to the next one. And I, I yep. admire people, you know, growing and, and, and making more money. I always like that, you know, they all want to make fun money and have it be 40 hours. And it doesn't work that way. It might work that way when you get to our age more and you get to retire some and, or slow down. And, you know, there, there's a time where that shit does happen. You know what I mean? I don't work very hard and still make a lot of money, but that, that's a long way down the track. That's 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 long way down the racetrack. So it's I just a lifetime of development. It's a lifetime of development, and and I always just chuckle that there, there is no free money. The reason we're we're fucked right now in the economy is because of all that stimulus money that went out there. The government put out trillions of dollars of quote unquote free money, and now we're paying the price because people took that free money because it didn't they didn't earn it. They pissed it away and spent it, which drove up demand, drove up supply. Inflation went through the roof, and now we're paying for it. The free money wasn't only the stimulus. Yeah. Getting a 0% loan. Oh, yeah. Free money everywhere. Yes. And that's the side that really cost the economy. Yeah. I, I having was... having the, the prime rate at zero. That, that's it's too easy. It's crazy. It's too easy. I, I said to somebody the other day, I said, here's what's a shame about what's happening now. I said, you know, people love him or hate him. I, I, and you don't have to comment on this by any means, but I love Trump. I'm a big Trump supporter, okay? I'm so, he's got his, he's got his flaws like everybody does. But under his, when he was president, the economy was booming. It was rocking and rolling, in my opinion. And the people I hang around with, which is people like yourself and Randy, but entrepreneurial people. And we all had one thing in common over four years. The economy was rocking and rolling and things were moving along, okay? And, and in that period of time, all of my employees, or at least say the real key ones, the ones that made a big difference, they all got significant raises in that time period. Do you know why I had to give them such good raises? Because I was gonna lose them. Right. The competitive market was so competitive mm -hmm. that the money was flowing so good, not by stimulus money or fucking just government throwing in money, but the actual just free capitalism kicking ass. But if I didn't pay them more, I was going to lose them. And I couldn't afford to lose these good people. 
So I had to put the golden handcuffs on them. I had to pay them enough yep. that they were not leaving my ass. Here's what's a shame now. Four years later, with inflation and everything, the way it's going up, gas prices and, and cost of living, all those raises I've got eaten up. They're back to zero again. So if I gave this person a $10,000 year raise, it all just got eaten up like that. So less than two years after he, he's out, kiss goodbye to that raise, it's all got eaten up because of the concept of free fucking money. There is no such thing as that. Everybody has to pay the fiddler at some point. So you say, you know, 0% interest, et cetera. I'm not going to deny that as part of it. I think a lot of the stimulus money had a lot to do with it, that, that it got mm -hmm. driven in a tremendous amount of money into the economy. But with that comes now, things are more expensive. Yep. So now we're actually, all this inflation and all this money, now we're paying for that free money. Yep. That's where this is coming from now. So you got the free money, congratulations. Now we're paying the banker. But you know where the banker is now? It's at the grocery store. It's at the gas pump. It's at lumber supplies. Now you're paying the banker now. So it all got wiped out. That, that's what I just think is humorous. But that's when you go back, was it real before? It wasn't real because we're paying the price today. Mm -hmm. And we will continue to. And we should have, you should pay all along. Yes. So let me ask you this, we'll finish up now. If you had to give one piece of advice to a young person watching this, a young Clinton or a young Dale, what was your brother's name, Alan? Alan. Alan, a young Alan. What could you tell them? What would you say if you had them to, 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 to give yourself some advice at, at what, 61 now, did you say? 61. 61. What would you tell yourself now? Uh, pretty much where I always come back to, do what you love. Do what you're passionate about. Find what you're passionate about. Do what you're passionate about. Do it the best. Don't do it for money. Do it the best, and the money will come. You know, that's the first thing. You know, we've talked about don't burn the bridges when it doesn't work out. When yes. you think you you got the perfect job and you don't, yeah. you know, we hire employees that we think are the perfect employees. They're not. Yeah. Employees go to the perfect job and it's not. Don't burn. You know, even when as employers, you know, when you have to tell somebody it's time to go, don't burn the bridge with them either. That's right. You know, the same respect goes Both for for a business leader. Yeah, this isn't working out, but I'm going to, you know, I respect you and I'm here. I'm going to help you if I can, but it's not here. You know? Yes. It, that goes both directions, you know, and when I speak at, at universities or even high schools, you know, the other thing is, uh, you know, today it, it is easy to go get a job. Mm -hmm. Every Every business has a help wanted sign in the window. It still does today. Uh, it isn't going to stay this easy. You have to take advantage of everything you can. And, you know, I try to tell people, don't show up for an interview looking like you just fell in your dad's tackle, tackle box. Yes. You know, if you got everything pierced all over your face, take it out for a day. Yeah. You want to use advantages that you can. You only get one first chance impressions. At first, impression. yes. first impressions are important, yes. and you can say no, they don't really matter. They do. Yes. Dress for the occasion. Put on clean clothes. Pull the piercings. Be respectful. If Show you put them early. back in when you, the job starts, deal with that. Then, 
take every advantage that you can to get the job. Yes. Right. When you go to work, the new employee, you should be first. Yes. You should be the first one in the door. Sure. The last one to leave. Yes. You will stand yeah. out so quickly. Yeah. You will get your boss's attention. You people will notice you. Yeah. And if they don't, another company will. No, exactly. You know, another company will, but companies are so desperate for really good people that if you stand out, you can almost name your price. Right. But the difference is kids want to name their price stepping in. Yeah. You don't get to name your price going in. You get to name it walking out the door. Make sure he Create knows how value. make sure he knows how valuable you are, and then you can call your price, and you'll right. get it. Create your value. Yes, create is key you don't word. Get to de demand your value. You get to create. Create your value. it. If that won't happen in forty-eight hours, it might take a couple of years, two or three years, four years. But if you're in the right place with the right culture and the right company, you will command what you're worth because they will know you're worth it, and they know how expensive it will be to replace somebody that good. I want to pay the key people in my business enough money that my competitors can never steal them from me because I, they're so valuable. I want to make sure that I'm paying them enough that they're not going to leave because I know how hard it is to replace how good they are. Yeah, and it, it, it's a vicious circle. Mm -hmm. You know, think what a business could pay everybody at the business if they weren't constantly training the new guy. Yes. <laughs> you know. That could go to everybody else. It's that constant train, the constant oh, yeah. turnover. The person who's been there for a few years, when the new guy comes in, you're doing the job for two. Yeah. Until they get trained, you yeah. know. Yeah. Yeah. So as a colleague to somebody, help them stay. Yes. Your life's easier if the guy that just was hired stays. That's true. <laughs> so for people who don't know much about airplanes and want to learn about Cirrus and so forth, they'll go to Cirrus's website. They can learn, you know, we didn't even get yeah. to talk about the jet. That's another subject, but you have a really high-end jet that's popular over the world now, a single engine jet. Yeah. But they can go to Cirrus website, learn all about them. Where's the manufacturing yeah. now? What city? Yeah. Uh, well, the website's CirrusAircraft.com. Headquarters, the manufacturing, the main manufacturing plant is up in Duluth, Minnesota. Okay. So we're northern Minnesota. We've got a facility in Grand Forks, North Dakota. Our... Uh, customer side of the business is all run out of Knoxville, mm -hmm. Tennessee. That's where sales, service, training, uh, all customer aspects are are driven from there. We've got salespeople all over the world, training uh, some company-owned, but training centers that are independent that train just Cirrus pilots all over the world, service centers all over the world. Aviation is a fantastic So yeah, I was just going to say, if you're a young person and you have some passion about flying and something, it sounds like Cirrus is a kind of company you could get in on the ground floor. And if you have a passion, have a skill set, want to learn, you could go some places. Yep. Yep. No, there's a lot of opportunities at Cirrus. There's a lot of opportunities to start at Cirrus. Mm -hmm. you know, we want you to start and stay there. But aviation in general. Yeah, it's just a booming a industry. Aviation is not a bunch of rich guys just flying around for mm. the fun of it. Yeah, It is an industry that makes sense. Businesses fly big jets because there's somebody who needs to get someplace or a group of people that need to get somewhere to keep a plant running. You know, for a company like the, the auto companies, you know, Ford and GM, you know, they got 
they got hammered back uh, a decade ago when they flew to Washington to, mm -hmm. when we were going through the, yeah. the last yeah. uh, recession. The reason they're flying around is because they don't have time to sit in a car. Time's they don't have time to sit at an airport. They don't have time to be there and say, oh, your flight just got canceled. Yeah, yeah, hey, standby. Yeah. Yep. Guess what? This plant's going to close unless this guy gets there and, and how fixes many people lose their jobs if the and plant then, stops? Yeah, there's thousands of people that are depending on somebody moving. Aviation makes sense. Yes. It is good business. It's good economics worldwide. It is important and it is a fantastic career. Yes. Yes. Well, Dale, cheers, mate. Thank you so much for taking the cheers. time to come in. Thank you. Uh, thank thank you. you for your wisdom. I've enjoyed it. I'm not a plane guy, but I've thoroughly enjoyed chatting with you, talking with you. I love learning from people that are successful, uh, been there, done that, and you're a great inspiration of, of, you know, for what you may not like me saying, but rags to riches. You started with nothing. You built an empire. It's changed the world. It's changed a a aviation. And I want people to see this and say, I don't have to come from money. I don't have to have wealthy parents. If I have work hard enough, I have passion, I'm willing to pay my dues, I can be number one. You can change a world, but you have to have the guts, the balls, the charisma, the passion to get it done. It's not about having opportunity. You create your opportunities. Ian Francis, my mentor, he always says, luck is when hard work and opportunity meet. Hard work, and yep. when the right opportunity meet, that's what you call luck. Yep. Too many people think luck is just what lucky people get. No, lucky, quote unquote, lucky people see opportunity, and then they meet it with hard work, and they knock it out of the park. Yep. Hard, hard work creates opportunities. That's exactly right. <laughs> Cheers, Dale. So, Thanks, mate. Thank you. Thank you. Today's episode was filmed at and produced by Intercut Productions. Marketing by Stuart and Associates, and organized and administrated by Down Under Horsemanship. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to hit the subscribe button, and I'll see you next time, mate. Cheers.